Before we begin today's show, I just want to let you know it's a little different from what we've done on the podcast. If you're listening around kids, you might want to listen with the headphones on as it does contain some mature content. Some of the stories are about violent crimes, and I really just don't want to catch anyone off guard. I had a tryout with the Bears that lasted um, about as long as my combine workout. lasted all about 10 minutes. I remember Coach Ditka uh, uh, about halfway through the workout said, Son, you were born... 20 years too late, and this game and this league has passed you by. When I realized that this football dream was crashing, I, I became involved uh, uh, with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which was uh, the leading federal agency for undercover work. Uh, they're well known as America's violent crime police. I worked undercover, and I played the role of uh, a debt collector, and I played the role of a hitman. So when my true identity came out, oh my goodness, the, the death threats and the violence threats started coming, and they started coming on my family, and they were like threatening my kids. Man, we know where your kids go to school. You're going to be waiting for your kid to get off a school bus one day, and he's not getting off, and you're never going to see him again. Threats to videotape the gang rape of my wife and make me watch it. Um, they'd issued... Uh, uh, murder contracts against me to the Aryan Brotherhood, to the MS-13, to some Los Angeles street gangs, all trying to come and get me. Um, in August of 2008, my house was burned to the ground. I lost everything I owned, my house and every possession, to the point where my wife and my kids were literally the next day at Walmart buying underwear because they didn't have a pair of underwear to put on. To listen to your message, press one. This is the Give Me a Sense Podcast. Here's Mike Yale. End of message. I'm so excited for today's show. I can't really thank everyone enough for listening. Hitting me up on social media, at Mike underscore Yam on Twitter and Instagram. The Facebook page is Mike Yam, and it's been really cool to see the growth over the last uh, couple episodes or so. Every single week, it seems like getting more and more feedback, and the numbers continue to grow. And as you guys know, not having sort of this big podcast network to push the show out, it's kind of a, a grassroots effort, and uh, it does take some time. Been pretty patient, and uh, it's it's really coming together very nicely. So once again, thanks to everyone for for listening to the show, subscribing it, sharing it is really important. Not to mention rating and reviewing on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you use to to listen to your podcast. Now, I know we've had a lot of tough athletes on the show. Ronnie Lott is certainly on the short list. Eric Allen most recently. Glenn Parker uh, from the Wildcats as well. And I think they would all agree today's guest is one of the toughest guys on the planet. Jay Dobbin actually played his college football. He started at Arkansas under Lou Holtz for a year, and then he transferred to Arizona. He became an all-Pac-10 honorable mention wide receiver in 83 and 84, and he's actually been called the toughest player in Arizona school history. Now, part of that label not only has to do with the fact that he played hurt or really being willing to take on huge hits by the defense, but getting crushed over the middle. But his career after football is really dropped a lot of jaws, in, including mine. An undercover agent for the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, he actually infiltrated the Hells Angels gang. Now, he wrote a book about the experience, which was actually a New York Times bestseller, No Angel, My Harrowing Undercover Journey to the Inner Circle of Hells Angels. Jay, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, nice introduction, and I'm flattered to be here, and uh, hello to your audience. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, Jay, I mean, I, I heard about your story. It is 
It is so unique. Uh, I, I don't think there's anyone that's got a story quite like yours. And I want to start with the football. We'll get into your book and, and all that stuff. But to be called the toughest player at a school in its history, I mean, what resonates when you hear something like that? Oh, my goodness. Um, with all the really hard edge uh, players that have played at Arizona, to be ranked as number one, was it, it was it was it was flooring for me. I mean, it kind of brought me to my knees to to think that other people felt that way about me. It was very very flattering, and and I'm, I'm humbled by it. Do you consider yourself? I mean, the, the rankings came out a while ago. Did did you think of yourself as a tough guy? Um, I thought I was a tough player. I I, I played hard. Um, I was never the biggest, the fastest, the strongest. I could never jump the highest. Um, I was never the most skilled player on, on any of the teams that I played on. I just played as hard as I could. I got my money's worth out of every play. I played as tough as I could. And that mentality is actually what kept me in the lineup. Not because I was such a dynamic uh, pass receiver. It's just that I gave you everything I got. And I was it was an honor to do my part for my teammates and for my school. And I, I really cherish that. I really took that to heart. What, what are some of those great memories from, from playing football? Well, the, some of the big wins. You know, we beat Notre Dame in South Bend. Yeah. Uh, we beat USC when they were number one with Marcus Allen. Um, I never lost to Arizona State, which is our, our big rival. <laughs> um, I beat uh, John Elway's Stanford team. Um, we beat UCLA when they were number three in the country. Uh, we had, you know, those are big wins and you remember those wins, but you know what I really remember is my teammates. Um, I couldn't tell you every game we won or lost. I couldn't tell you how many passes I caught or when I had a great game or when I had a poor game, but I can tell you about my teammates and that's what's really stuck with me. You know, it's funny, you're not the, the first player to make reference to that. I had asked Eric Allen, uh, who was on the podcast recently, and uh, you know, even Ronnie Lott, Glenn Parker, a couple of those guys that I made reference to. Jake Plummer is another guy that, that I think of as well, where they talk about, you know, I usually ask the guys, like, is it fun when you're out there? I mean, we're fans, so the game's fun for us when we're watching. But, I mean, you, you, you took some huge hits. And, you know, it's not, I'm, I'm sure you woke up sore. It was hard to walk some mornings. But everyone always says, yeah. That was fun, and they always circle back to those relationships that they had on the football field. So I, I, I can understand why why you would focus in on some of that stuff. And I'm sure those great memories are things that you were thinking about, especially after your playing days were done and those relationships that you had. But you sticking on the football theme before we start talking about uh, some of the things that you've done post-playing career – thoughts for you to play at the next level? Because you took part in the in the combine. 1985, there were some big-time names out there. What's that experience like for you? Well, you know, I went to the combine, and um, I was an all-Pac-10 player, and I showed up, and I really thought I was going to put it on these guys. I was going to show them how pass receivers played the game from the most dynamic offensive conference in the country. And I got paired up with uh, some guys who were my size, uh, my build. Uh, one guy was from uh, Cutstown State. And I didn't even know there was a Cutstown State. I had to ask him, like, where's that at? Oh, it's in Pennsylvania. Another guy was from a, a small school in Mississippi. 
You know, and, and at 21 years old, I had it all figured out. I knew what I was going to do. I was going to play professional football. And I was going to play, I was going to play 10 years, and then I was going to go to a couple Pro Bowls and maybe play in a Super Bowl, and then I was going to get done and manage my investments and manage my restaurants and be, you know, a football player till the day I died. Ten minutes into the drills at the Combine, I knew I had to find another job. That's how long it took me to realize that I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Now, I wasn't necessarily judging myself against the fairest competition because the kid from Cutstown State was Andre Reed, who played, what, 15 years for the Bills and is in the Hall of Fame? And the guy from uh, the school in Mississippi was from Mississippi Valley State. It was Jerry Rice. Um, so I was at the Combine competing with these future Hall of Famers you know, and I walked in there and I thought like, man, I'm going to turn it out. I'm going to show these guys how you do it. And literally within minutes, I was, my mind was racing like, what else am I going to do for a living? Because I didn't have a plan B. So what, what ends up happening for you then? Um, I played a partial season in Canada. I played in the, in the Canadian Football League with the uh, Ottawa Rough Riders. Um, I played a partial season uh, in the USFL. Um, the, 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 the strike, the, the lawsuit shortened season um, where Doug Williams was uh, the quarterback on that team and Rick Neuheisel, who I know yeah. you're friends with, was the, oh, yeah. was, was the quarterback on that team. I should have had um, Rick had come on the, uh, on the show with you, Jay. I'm sure you guys oh, could swap Rick. some stories. Love Rick. Played against Everyone Rick in does. college. Um, absolutely love everything about him. You know, um, I had a tryout with the bears that lasted, um, about as long as my combine workout lasted all about 10 minutes. I remember coach Ditka, uh, uh, about halfway through the workout said, son, you were born 20 years too late. And this game and this league has passed you by. Um, and uh, like, I was flattered by that. The fact that, that, that this guy, you know, that Mike Ditka would, like, would even speak to me, for one thing, but that he at least recognized that my style maybe had a place at, at some given time in the history of that league. I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, that, that's as good as it's going to get for Jay Dobbins as a football player. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like your tryout with them lasted as long as Rick's did with the Green Bay Packers. I don't know if you ever heard that story from him. I have, you know, and, and Rick, we, we played against, me and Rick played against each other in college, and man, he was just, he was fun to play against, man. He was just a gunslinger and a competitor and never out of the game, and, and uh, you know, Rick's an Arizona boy. You know, I, I, oh, I yeah. played high school football here in, in Tucson and then went to school here, and Rick was a Tempe boy up the street, and so I always, I always admired him. I always, yeah. I always admired him. Even when I was competing against him, I admired Rick, and I, and I liked him as a person. Yeah, his folks are still down in uh, in that area uh, still to this day. I know a couple of years ago when he was still working with us at Pac-12 Network, we, we used to go and visit them during our training camp tour. I, I'm going to get Rick on the show. I don't want to spoil his Green Bay Packers story. He's going to come on the podcast uh, over the next couple of weeks or so. We've been texting back and forth it, on that. But Yeah, yeah Rick's, Rick's uh, sister was a cheerleader at Arizona. Yes. Nancy yeah. Neuheisel was a cheerleader at Arizona when I was in school. So uh, that family, I'll tell you what, man, that family's got good looking kids. You know, Rick's a, Rick's a handsome man and his sister when we were in college. Oh, my goodness. She was a knockout. <laughs> Rick's the ugliest one in the family. Well, then that they're all doing pretty good. Then if he's the ugly one. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I think Rick's wife, Sue, 
was roommates with Rick's sister. I think is how they met, if I'm not mistaken. So oh, just man, the connections are, all over are, the place. Yeah, those are two girls when I was in school that I was too skinny and small and ugly for them to be friends with, but I would have loved <laughs> to have been friends with those girls. I'm going to make sure I'm going to text Rick when we're done with uh, this podcast and let him know about that. And I'll tell him that you said hello, but, but Please I, do. you finish up play, right? So you say, okay, like, Hey, I'm, I'm done. I, I got to figure out what I'm going to do. You made reference to what your initial plan was at 21, right? You're graduating, you're figuring, Hey, I'm going to play make a couple of pro bowls, playing a super bowl. I'm going to manage restaurants. So how in the world do you go from playing ball to then all of a sudden law enforcement? Well, I'll tell you what, like self-confidence for me was never a problem. Um, I don't think I was cocky. I wasn't a guy that uh, was in your face. I just always was very confident in myself and what I was doing. So when I realized that this football dream was crashing, at that point in time, Miami Vice, the, the television show Miami Vice, not the movie for the young audience, not Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx, <laughs> the old school Miami Vice show would come on Friday nights, and we'd be even in the hotel pregame, and, and we would finish our uh, night before meetings to make sure that everybody could get back to their hotel room to watch Miami Vice, and it was just, it was glamorous, and it was sexy. And I thought like, man, you know, if I can't play football, I might be able to do that. I can be Sonny Crockett. You know, I can drive around South Beach. I can, I'll roll in the Lambo with the silk suit, and I'll go negotiate with the drug kingpin in, uh, in Miami Beach. And, and uh, I'll have the, the, the stripper models bringing me pomegranate martinis out on the deck of some mansion. You know, I can do that. I can do that. And you did, sort of. Well, I did. You know, I, um, I, I became involved uh, uh, with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which was uh, the leading federal agency for undercover work. Uh, they're well known as America's violent crime police. And it was just, man, it just, it worked out so good. You know, I just, I, I, I didn't think I could be any happier than I was when I was playing football. And my career after football actually made me even happier. I, I w it was a joy. It was my honor to handle the dirty work for America, to stick up for people who either couldn't or wouldn't stick up for themselves. I, I loved every day of it. Jay, what you just described in some ways when you said, hey, I, I didn't think that I could enjoy life, or I'm paraphrasing what you just said, more than when I was playing football, and yet you describe your time as an agent, essentially, even better. And I'm glad you classified it the way that you did, because in my head, I go, dangerous, around criminals. This is, how, how could you be happier doing that or being around that environment compared to playing ball, having fun, the camaraderie which, with your teammates, and yet you, you sort of classify it perfectly. But I want to circle back here. How do you figure, like, are you... Do you sign up? Do you are you recruited for this? Like, how do you figure out like what branch you're going to end up going to? Well, there's so many uh, different agencies that have so many different jurisdictions and specialties. Um, and like, I knew I wanted to work undercover, and I knew that ATF was the best place for me to do that. And so, that was my focus. You know, I wanted to be the real life Sonny Crockett. 
You know, that was that was my goal. And that's what I, like the same way I played football, I approached my post-career pro- professional life with with focus and with resiliency and with goals and with determination. Like, this is who I want to be. This is how I want to be that person. And, uh, man, I just, you know, I, and I'm a grinder. That's, I was a grinder as a football player. I'm a grinder as a federal agent. I'm a grinder as a husband. I'm a grinder as a father. I'm a grinder as a friend. Um, I just try hard. So what do you, you know, you mentioned being a husband. Are, are you married by the time you, you're, you join ATF or no? I was. Does that you happen? Know, I, um, you know, I, I um, got hired on a Monday. On a Thursday, four days into the job, I got taken hostage and shot through the chest. I was shot in the back by a suspect, and the bullet went through my chest, through my lung, and exited the front of my chest. Four days on the job, you know, and um, with the feds, we get paid every two weeks. I hadn't even gotten a paycheck yet. I comped them that one. You know, it was on the house. And people say, like, oh, man, how did you keep going? And so many of the lessons that we learned through sports that I learned on the football field came into play there. It, like, it didn't scare me. It empowered me. It made me want to do it more. I was like, man, I just had a bullet go through my chest and I'm still here and I'm still in the game and I'm still fighting. And it just, it made me want to be better and do it more and get more aggressive. It, it had the exact opposite impact on me that people would expect. Yeah, I'd say so. Because uh, I get, I, minus the bullet getting taken hostage, I would have been like, no, I'm out the door. What, what's your, your wife's reaction to that? I mean, she's got to know your personality. She fell in love with you. She gets married. You know, she's got to know the, the mindset and how you're wired. But she's got to be scared out of her wits knowing that you just oh, got shot goodness. for the job. Yeah, she's, she's so much better than I deserve. I, you know, she's been through so much uh, supporting me and, and through my career. And, um, you know, uh, I believe in second chances and I'm on my millionth second chance with her. So, um, yeah, I've been blessed. All right. So what, what types of cases are you working on? Because I think the big one that everyone is aware of is, is the one I made reference to you with is the focus of your book on Hell's Angels. And I want to get to that, but you, you're not, you know, you recover, obviously, and you get back to work and your, your next assignment is not Hell's Angels. Like, I, I don't think that's the case. So what types of of cases are you working on that lead to that type of job? Well, for 27 years, I worked undercover. And I played the role of uh, a debt collector, and I played the role of a hitman. And I took that persona, and I used it over and over and over, and recycled it into case after case after case. Um, I investigated home invasion, crews, um, organized crime, traditional uh, organized crime, mafia crime, um, gang crime. Um, I was involved in dozens of murder for hire cases, um, uh, cartel cases, and uh, you know, actually, the Hell's Angels case, which you mentioned, um, that that's not even the case that I'm the proudest of. That case got a lot of attention because the Hell's Angels are glamorous and they're sexy, but that that's, that wasn't even my best work. That just got the most pub- publicity. What, what was that? Um, you know, uh, after Timothy McVeigh detonated his uh, bomb 
at the federal building in Oklahoma City. Um, sure. I had already established uh, an undercover persona with some of the uh, co-conspirators, some of the suspects that he had trained for that mission with. And they were located in uh, northwest Arizona and the southern tip of Nevada, um, and where Colorado and Nevada and Arizona all meet there at the Colorado River. And that's where a lot of these knuckleheads hung out, trained together. There was a very strong militia mentality in the country at that point. I already had inroads and, and had credibility as a, as a criminal in that group. So when that bomb was detonated, that, that case became very important on a national scale. And ultimately, uh, my partner and I um, got involved in a plan to bomb three Las Vegas casinos. Um, some people were uh, trying to obtain C4 plastic explosives with the intent of creating Oklahoma City Part 2. And they were going to detonate a bomb and kill as many people and, and create as much destruction as they could. And like right in the heart of what they believe to be America's prime area of decadence, you know, Vegas and drinking and women and gambling and everything that they believe to be dirty about America, they were going to attack that. And um, me and my partner infiltrated that group. We broke up the plan. We actually ended up selling uh, uh, destructive devices, improvised uh, explosive devices, IEDs, which we hear about now all the time from uh, the Gulf. Uh, we sold him homemade bombs that he was going to use to commit this bombing murder and then arrested him. So I take a lot of pride in that because um, the, the death toll, um, had he pulled this off, oh my goodness, it would have been, I mean, it, I don't even want to think about how bad that would have been. I don't huh? even want to think about it. Right. There's so many places I want to go here. I want to rewind again. You mentioned persona, right? You said debt collector, hitman. How do you like? Can you explain? I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm novice. I have no idea. I mean, I watch the movies like you did. Miami Vice was an inspiration. I watch Homeland. I, I watch all these types of shows. Breaking Bad. I, that's that's Hollywood stuff. So when you say, "Hey, I took on this persona," what characterize what that actually means for someone like myself who who doesn't truly understand it. Well, you know, like I, I'm a fan of the entertainment world, too. I'm a guy that goes and buys tickets and goes to uh, movie theater and I watch Netflix and I watch television shows and I love those shows. And uh, the media, film, television, books, magazines, they make my world glamorous and sexy. And they make it seem really, oh, my goodness, like really daring. And you know what it is? I mean, that's a fraud. That's a counterfeit on the American people. It's Hollywood's fraud on us because in real life, it is a nasty, dirty, bloody, vomit-covered world. And you're dealing with people who are absolutely despicable, who have no regard uh, for human life. They have no regard for humanity. And they're selfish and they're greedy and they're predators and it's it's very much different in real life than what we see when we go and buy a ticket and walk into a movie theater. There's got to be some sort of intimidation. Those moments where you're undercover and the adrenaline's going, how do you stay calm in those instances, knowing that 
it's not Hollywood. It's not something you watch on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, you know, HBO or Showtime. I mean, this is this is real life. You got shot four days on the job. I mean, the reality is these you know are what? bad people. You know what, Mike? It's like my job is like anybody else's job out there. It's like your job. It's like being a, a, a broadcaster. It's like playing the piano. It's like no, 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 it's no, like Jay, being Jay. a stockbroker. The more you do it, the better you get at it, and the more comfortable you become with it. And then it becomes uh, a matter of you uh, implementing your tradecraft. And, and that's what it became for me. It became, I got very confident, and I got very comfortable in my role. And so, you know, my analogy may not be the best analogy, but look at yourself from when you started in, uh, in, in the media business, when you started as a sportscaster. Yeah. And then look at yourself now. You're going to say, man, I'm so much better. I'm so much more confident. I'm so much more self-assured. You know, like all of us have that in our profession. I just happen to have a profession that, you know, causes me to cross paths with, with predators. But, it, but the, the process is the same. So what you're describing to me is I am maybe the most badass sportscaster there is based off of your analogy, I which I like. Absolutely I'll go with it. believe that. <laughs> absolutely believe that. I'd like to set up a cage match with a bunch of you guys, and I guarantee you that you're the guy that ends up at the top of the ladder and rings the bell. Yeah, just make sure they're smaller than me, and that might be harder to find a group of us uh, that that are <laughs> shorter than five eight that you can set up that I cage bet you match with. Vin Scully, you know, Vin I, Scully's I, like when you think I, of the voice I, of sports. You know, like it'd be hard to find a more recognizable uh, voice from our generation than Mr. Scully. I guarantee you could take him. You know what the problem would be? We'd be in the cage match and Vin would say my name and I'd freeze because I just want him to keep talking. Right? <laughs> that, that's what would end right? up happening. So, right? um, But look, I, I get where you're going with this. You become comfortable in those roles which is still crazy, I think, to, to me and, and probably anyone who's listening to this podcast right now, considering the demands, the pressure. How do you, how, you know, an actor, I've heard this before, and I've never acted, but an actor tries to find himself in, in, and really take on that character. And I think that's probably in some instances what you're doing when you're undercover. But how do you draw the line? Like, how do you make sure you're not on set anymore? You're living. You're at Hell's Angels. You're, you're around these guys constantly. You're hanging out with them. They become your friends. And I guess in some instances, right? I mean, because of those relationships. Sure, I shouldn't use course, friends, yeah. but is that a good way to describe it? I don't want to. Absolutely. Know. I don't think um, as an undercover operator, you inherit this persona. And then you're out there and you're trying to gain trust and loyalty and confidence and love from the people you're working on. Um, but you can never completely eliminate the human factor from it. You're around people and maybe they're doing bad things, but you also see the good side of bad people. You know, you hold their babies, you eat with them, you spend social time with them and you see elements to them that you like. And then, you know, a minute later, they're doing something despicable and violent, and it takes that all away. But um, if, if you're a human being, you can never completely eliminate the human factor and like compassion and, and care for people and, 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 uh, and enjoyment of other people. So then, Jay, where's the line? And, and not even just in your relationships, and I want you to answer both of these, but like the line with 
the relationships you have with these guys that you're trying to put in jail and also the line in your own head where you are not the guy that you're essentially pretending to be you're you're another dude out there you're yourself so how do you how do you manage the persona and the relationships and and what you need to do to not only stay alive but also do your job mike i'll tell you this is not a flattering statement of myself um i I failed in that i was not uh, not very good at that To, to work undercover and to and and to deal with the people that i dealt with you can't treat it as a hobby you have to go all in. You, it has to be 100% because people that treat that tradecraft as a hobby get killed. And I did it for so long that I became that person. I started acting like my persona outside the job, in my social life, with my family. Uh, my family will tell you, man, I, I, there was a point in time where I was a very unpleasant person to be around. My wife would tell me, hey, man, I know you act like this on the street, but you can't act like this when you come home with me and with our kids. And then my quick response was, well, I'm not a light switch, and I can't turn this on and off. And then she would say, well, you better install a dimmer then, because this ain't flying. You cannot come to this house and act like a debt collector or a hitman or a thug around me and these kids. And, man, you know, when I look back at that now, Man, that's humiliating for me. It's embarrassing for me to tell that story, but it's it's so true. Um, I, I would I would be in my in my personal life. I would like sign my sign a signature, like to sign a document, to sign a check. I would sign it J Davis because that was my undercover name, and I'd have to rip it up and tear it up and say like, wait a minute, I'm not J Davis, I'm J Dobbins. Wow. What can I, I not? I mean, a lot of this is personal. Do you, can I ask about how the relationship with your wife, how it changes, and like how you how you keep it together? Oh my goodness! Well, you know, so much of the credit goes to her, um, uh, tolerating me, checking me like when I needed to be checked, which was quite often. Uh, man, we had some very struggled times, very very hard times, times where we um, like had separated from each other because. Um, I was, uh, you know, I had become intolerable. Um, and you know what? I was so caught up in what I was doing. I had developed this, like almost this hero syndrome about myself, where I felt that like what I was doing was so important and I was taking care of people and I was protecting people that I expected my family, my wife and my kids to tolerate that behavior from me in my personal life as their contribution to my mission. And they didn't sign on for that. They didn't sign on for for me to be Donnie Brasco part two. You know, my kids wanted a dad. They wanted to go ride bikes and play catch and jump in the swimming pool and go to movies and read books. They didn't care if their dad was super cop or not. Um, And, you know, at, at that point in my life, again, very humiliating to say, man, I failed them. There was a point in my life where I abandoned my family in exchange for my career because I was just so, I felt like I was so important and I was doing something so important. Um, And in hindsight, you know, um, I would do everything again. I would do my job again. I would just do it better. I would handle my personal life better. I would do my job cleaner. Jay, Saturday, 
paint the picture for the audience that that are trying to understand what undercover not just you but just undercover agents in general how like how much interaction is there with their family i mean you made reference to it hey you, you, i think we all understand everyone's job right you're going to miss certain things soccer games hanging out with your kid i mean that just happens sometimes because of work but with what you do I mean, you're a different person. You're signing checks with a different name. You are completely not the person that they, they've known their entire lives. So how much interaction do you have when you're on a case? Um, it, it depends on the case. It depends on the investigation. It depends on the depth of the infiltration. Um, you know, like, like, for example, during the Hells Angels case, I didn't spend much time at home. And when I was home, it was... Uh, like but mainly just to keep my family functioning, you know, come home, mow the grass, pay the bills, pat the kids on the head, have a cup of coffee with the old lady. And that was back to work. And that's no way to run a family. That's no way to raise kids. Um, you know, for years during that case, my, when I'd leave my son who was about eight at the time would run out in the yard and he would grab a rock out of the yard. Dad, don't leave yet. And he'd give me a stone. And for two years during that case, during my, very infrequent trips home, he'd make, he'd give me a stone. And for two years, I believe that he was giving me good luck charms. And towards the end of the case, I'm getting ready to leave. And he brings me a stone and I was trying to comfort my son. I was 40 plus years old and he was, you know, eight. And I was trying to comfort my son. And I said, thank you for all this good luck. And look at, you know, look, here I am. I'm fine. And my kid looked at me and he said, dad, those aren't for good luck. Those are for you to put in your pocket. And when you think someone's going to shoot you or stab you or hurt you, you can put your hand in your pocket and you can touch that stone. And that's like me being there to help you. And that might have been the lowest moment of my life because I had become so consumed in my role that, I, that an eight-year-old boy had to teach his dad what my job was. My job wasn't to... Uh, this hero syndrome to like do like sacrifice everything for world's benefit and for the nation's safety. My job was to raise good kids and I was failing. You ever think about quitting at that point? Um, I readjusted my mentality. I know that I like, I don't think I've ever quit anything. Um, I don't think I've ever quit, but I, it, it was, it was eye opening. It was eye opening to have, to have to have your son, your child, tell you, explain to you in his way what your job was. Um, and he wasn't trying to do that. He'd been giving me, you know, what I believe to be good luck rocks. And what he was doing was trying to give me a part of his life to say, man, when things are bad and when they're dangerous, I'm with you, Dad. I'm there with you. I can help you. Oh, my goodness. Like, like oh, you know, I look back at myself and I look at that and it's, you know, I'm telling you this story, you know, it's, it's, I'm telling it to you with brutal honesty, but it's humiliating to tell that story. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like the story. I hope I've become a better person since then. Jay, was that, were you doing the Hell's Angels investigation at that point? Yes, I was. Do you remember that moment heading back to wherever you were going to meet with the gang or, or I, don't, I'm not, I don't know if I'm using the right verbiage, but do you remember what that ride was like when you were leaving your house? Oh, you know what? Um, I'm not a, um, I'm not a big tears guy, but I remember tears rolling down my cheeks. Um, I remember thinking, 
you know, like, man, is it worth it? You know, has this 20 plus years of doing this, has it really been worth it? Um, you know, and, and then I, th and then I think about some of the accomplishments, you know, and, and some of the good things that happened and, and, and some of the uh, cases that I worked on, you know, that stopped violent acts from happening or where I caught a violent criminal. I have to say, yes, it was. I, I, I could have done my job cleaner. Um, I could have taken better care of my family along the way. But, um, you know, the same thing happens to us in sports. We get so consumed as athletes with what we're doing that you have to, you have to be all in uh, to achieve, to excel. And, and we tend to forget about other things in our life that are important. And that just reminded me, hey, you know what, you're not as important as you think you are. And there's other things in your life that, that have a greater value than what you're doing. Jay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an analogy. And this is probably the worst analogy ever. But I always say for anyone who's on air, you do a radio show or a TV show. If you're having a bad day, it doesn't matter. You, you, can't, you can pout in the breaks. You can pout before you get out there. You can be upset. But as soon as the light goes on, it's game time, right? I mean, it's the first time someone's watching sure. you. The last thing you want to do is give them a bad impression. You got to do every show like it's the first time someone's watching. That's always been my philosophy. And yet, I'm just like everyone else. I have bad days. You just told me sure. that story about, about your son. In my head, though, like you're doing, I'm, I'm on, look, if I mess up on TV, who, re, I mean, I, yeah, maybe it's a little embarrassing. Maybe I know the mistake. Most people might not even pick up on it. How do you, when you have a different persona, you just left your son, you're emotional, you got to head back on the job now where you are a different person. How do you, how do you like psychologically handle that situation? Like you can't really have a bad day. Like how do you explain a bad day? <laughs> you know, like you, you can't, I, yeah. right? I mean. You don't have yeah, that outlet. You it, sure, you hit it on the head, though. Like I had bad days, and um, I had days uh, like in sports where I probably performed below what I felt I should have, and and felt like I could have done better. I could have played a better game. I could have been better today on this case. Um, but I think you hit it on the head, and and this is the the mentality that I've taken forward in life. That if you're having a bad day, if you're sad, if you're angry. You know who cares? No one cares. So I, I, like I just make myself happy. I wake up and I say, I'm going to be happy today. And bad things happen and things that I wish didn't happen or, you know, I make mistakes every day. Every night I hit the pillow and I say to myself, okay, like I count the things that I did wrong, that I said wrong, wish I did, that I, you know, should have done that I didn't do and vice versa. Um, and you can be as pathetic as you want to be. But no one cares. They expect you to be good. They expect you to be happy. So I just, that's what I do. I just, I'm happy. Jay, I haven't even really gone into the whole Hells Angels deal. How, do you remember how you got assigned to that? Like, what's that process like? Well, the, uh, the case agent, the, the, the agent that was leading the case approached me and said, I want to take a run at these guys and I need an undercover agent. And to be honest with you, I said, yeah, um, I can name eight or 10 guys off the top of my head who I think would be a great fit for this. I, I wasn't a biker investigator. Um, I wasn't like intimately familiar with the culture and the protocols. And he insisted that it was me and convinced me that I should do it. And um, I've always been up for the challenge. I always, I love being the underdog. Um, 
when I was a receiver at Arizona. You know, I was 6'1 and 175 pounds, and I played in the slot, and I ran routes over the middle. I love being the underdog. I've never been afraid to, uh, to get knocked down, to get hit in the mouth. And, uh, and I, I think that's uh, like probably what translated from my athletic career to my professional career is that I've always been willing to take risks and I've always been willing to stand up to the bully. Um, and, and I don't, I'm not even necessarily sure that I'm good at it, but I'm willing. And if you're willing, if you're willing to run a slant route over the middle, if you're willing to, uh, to go and, and reach for the ball over your head, knowing someone's going to put a helmet in your ribs, if you're willing to go interact with the Hells Angels or with a, with a murderer or a rapist or a drug dealer or a gun runner, man, that's half the battle. Willingness. You know, it's, it's, I, I coach high school football, and I tell my receivers that blocking is 10% technique and 90% just desire to go do it. The techniques aren't that hard. It's who has the heart, who is willing to go out there and crash into people and block when there's no glory in it, when there's no headlines in it, when someone else is going to score the touchdown. If you're willing to do that, you'll be good at it. Man, same, as, same as my job as undercover agent. Man, do you? I'm bad, man. I'll tell you that right now. Because I, there are people who have the will to want to win, not going to give up. It's different in this environment, and I know you're going to tell me it's not. And it, it just, it in my head, at least it is, and that's probably why I'm doing what I'm doing, and you were able to do and and, and infiltrate Hell's Angels. I knew the group. Now I've I've done research to get ready for this podcast. So I have a good understanding now of of why this group was just as dangerous as they were. But prior to hearing your story, I didn't know much about it. I've heard of the gang. I, I got the whole bike deal. You, you use the term sexy, you know, cause to, to describe this group because they were so notable. Just how dangerous is this group? For those who don't know oh about Hells Angels, give, give me a sense here, no pun intended. Give me a sense of, of just yeah. how dangerous they are. Well, I'll tell you, they're, um, they're an international organized crime syndicate. Um, they are America's export to organized crime. Other syndicates come to America. They come here because there's money to be made here. Uh, the Italian mafias, the Sicilian mafias come here for money. Um, the Asian mobs, the Russian mobs come to America because there's money to be made here. The, the biker, the outlaw biker culture is America's export to the world. The Hells Angels are on every continent with the exception of the ice caps. And the only reason they're not there is because motorcycles don't run at 60 below and there's no one to make money off of, or they'd be there too. They churn billions of dollars, um, some legally, a lot of it illegally. Um, they're heavy in the narcotics trade. They're heavy, heavy, heavy in violence. Um, man, in, in my time there, you name it, I saw it. I experienced it. I was around it. Murder, rape, gun running, drug dealing, extortion, assaults, arsons, uh, man, beatings, um, like the mistreatment of children, the mistreatment of women. Um, every 
every vile thing that you could think of, I experienced in that case. How do you infiltrate a group like that then? Um, skill, expertise, experience, willingness. Um, you know, like like in in sports, we watch uh, we watch film. We watch in football, we watch film. We watch game film. We study the opponent. We study the enemy. I studied these guys. I, I watched them and I learned. Um, I, I'm a pretty quick learner and I'm a pretty quick study. And I um, seem to have a fairly good sense of who's who. You know, when I cross paths with a suspect who wasn't involved in the violence, who wasn't uh, involved in heavy crime, they really didn't have my attention. I wasn't out there just to make friends. I was out there to get next to the nastiest guy I could find. You know, when I was on the job, I had one prayer. And it was, God, please put me in the path of the most vile, dangerous person that you can find. And let me see if I can do something about it. Let me see if I can make an impact here. That's all I ever wanted to do, was to just have an opportunity to try. And it's the same way that I played football. You know, I came to Arizona, when I went to Arkansas, I just wanted an opportunity to try to see if I could do it. Well, you got that opportunity and you were successful in a lot of ways. When you, you said, hey, you wanted to be in the path of the baddest dude, right? I mean, the guy that was causing problems. Once you're involved in those situations, you're a good guy, right? I mean, you're working for the good guys at that point. How do you manage not necessarily taking part, but taking part? Do you know what I mean? Because sure. you can't really infiltrate without being a part of the group because you're a part of the group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in an undercover role, in an undercover assignment, there's certain level of levels of crime that are sanctioned through the prosecutors, through your job, that you can participate in. You know, but when I first started, when I was a young man, first starting to work undercover, I knew there was a handful of crimes that I would never watch take place in my presence. I would come out of role and I would try to do something to put an end to it. I wasn't going to watch uh, someone be murdered. I wasn't going to watch a woman be raped. And I wasn't going to watch a kid be beaten. Um, and and those, those situations, had they happened in my immediate presence, I would have forfeited my persona, forfeited my false identity, and said, hey, I'm a cop and this ain't happening and figured it out from there. But man, you know, um, did I see murders? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the world of undercover work, it's fluid, it's spontaneous. You don't always get the plan. Um, you don't always, you know, it's, it's like in football, like, you know, coaches like to script their first 10 plays. You can have your script, but man, it ain't going to go that way. Nothing. An operation isn't going to go according to the script. It's going to go exactly opposite of the script. How crazy making is it? I mean, you're you're part of that world for a couple of years there. Like, you're it's, you're around. You know this. what it is? I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell. I'll tell you what's hard about it. It's it's the intensity of being at game day every day. Um, when we play football, we we ramp ourselves up during the course of the week, 
And then we, as a college football player, you time yourself mentally and emotionally and physically to perform and to explode on Saturday afternoon. And then Sunday you catch your breath, and then Monday you start that ramp up again. And you know when and where. That time to perform and to be on, when it's going to be and where it's going to be. The difference is, in an undercover role, is that every day is that game day. And every day you have to be mentally prepared. And, you know, your, might, your night might end at 1 in the morning, but if someone knocks at your door at 3 in the morning and says, hey, come with me, I'm going to go do something, it's game day again. And, and sometimes you haven't had the chance to emotionally psych yourself up for what's coming. And so you have to be on your game all the time. And when you're on it all the time, to, to be honest with you, the hardest thing is the stress, managing it, um, trying to get solid sleep, trying to get rest. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's, um, physically, it's draining, but mentally and emotionally, um, it takes the people that do it for a living and do long-term infiltrations takes a special person mentally and emotionally to be ready for a kickoff at the snap of a finger any day, sometimes multiple times a day, versus just being ready mentally at 1 o'clock on Saturday to perform. You have to be ready to perform any second. This might sound silly, but you played football at the college level, you went to the combine. You, you you were able to play a little bit. You ever worry about some of these guys recognizing you? I mean, it's football. You're always wearing helmets. I always say this. You know, do seminars sometimes, and you tell you know you talk to students, and you say, hey, you know, there's a reason why basketball players, baseball players, you know, the the soccer players, they get maybe some more endorsements. Tennis more though more so than football guys, just because sure. of the whole aspect of of the helmet and covering their face. But does that ever cross your mind? Because I mean, you're a good player. You know, it's a good question, and I get asked that, especially I, I did a lot of undercover work here in Tucson where I played high yeah. school football and played college football. And I got, you know, I got a fair amount of notoriety. I mean, the, the, the media and the press were very kind to me as an athlete, very flattering to me. Um, but the truth is, is that people in the criminal world, people that I was dealing with, generally don't read the sports page. They generally don't go to football games. Um, I had very few incidents over 27 years where someone said, hey, man, I know you. I recognize you. Um, there, like only maybe a handful of times. Now, maybe that's a reflection of um, my athletic career, that after playing, that no one recognized me, no one remembered me. Um, but when I was in college, you know, I was a young man, and, um, man, I was the milk and Oreos guy. I was the workaholic. I wasn't the party boy. I was the weight room uh, film room, extra practice guy. Um, and then as a, as an undercover operative, you know, I was the bar guy. I was, you know, shaved head and goatee and tattoos and earrings, you know? So, so my physical appearance from my days as an athlete to my days as an undercover operative, um, man, I don't even recognize myself when I look at those old pictures, you know, with long blonde curls, you know, uh, pretending like I was, you know, Phil Elliott in North Dallas 40. You just said, hey, most of these guys, they're not going to football games. Okay, that's fair. 
what are, what are, what's happening with these gangs? I mean, we all have, you know, most people listening to this show, they man, they get up in the morning, they have their 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 daily commute to work. It's the, you know, no one really has a nine to five anymore, but you get the where I'm going with this. You know, they have their jobs. Sure. That's what they do. What what, sure. what do gang guys do? Like, what's their their nine to five? You know what? They're they're really no different than any other element of society. They hang out with people that look like them and act like them, and um, which, I mean, in a sense, in a very uh, broad sense, is, is, is what causes some of the social issues today, is that we hang out and we identify and we live amongst people that look and act like us. So they do what they do. They party and they, you know, they, you know they, in their world, they're celebrities with that patch on their back and they're worshipped and they're idolized. And they like that, and they put themselves in places where that is appreciated. Um, you know, and it's and so, you know, which, which is like socially, just like like you didn't ask this question, but I think it's a natural evolution to the interview. Um, as a law enforcement officer, when you look at the social issues today, when you look at Black Lives Matter and uh, the dislike for law enforcement, and man, it's so. Oh my gosh, it's so heartbreaking for me because um, I grew up as an athlete. I grew up around African Americans. You know, I was in locker rooms with African Americans. They were some of my best friends, are still some of my best friends. Um, guys that I competed with, that I played with, who have my love, who would literally step in front of a bullet for me today, and that I would step in front of a bullet for them. And when I see, you know, this this umbrella of you know, the black community and the, and the dislike for law enforcement officers, it's heartbreaking because I got so much love from my teammates and, and, and that culture. And um, really, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a hard time for all of us. You know, there's no doubt about that. It's a really difficult time for all of us. When you're on a case, do you, can you, do you communicate? Obviously, you're, you're, I'm assuming you're checking in when you can with home, but what about your social interaction with your actual friends i mean is that just completely on the back burner yeah that that uh, you know for a large extent that comes to an end um and and i'll tell you why is because um you, it, it's hard to be out socially when you're in a in a long-term infiltration because if you cross paths with suspects and you're with your social friends you you've brought those social friends into a violent environment that they didn't sign on for and that they don't deserve to be in and that most likely they're not trained to react to or to be comfortable in. And so, man, it's a world of isolation. You know, you really become isolated. You become, uh, you, you internalize and you become isolated from your family. You become isolated from your friends and you're spending all your time with the, with the suspects. And, um, yeah, it's 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 difficult. There's no doubt. It's difficult. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's re, it's hard to do. Jay, what's the best thing that came out of the investigation and the infiltration? The best thing that came out of it, I, I think, on a personal level, the best thing came out of it was uh, probably the self-realization, or or maybe the help from my family that um, I was in too deep, that I was. Um, uh, I, I I I probably felt. Uh, Internally, myself, that I was much more important than I was. Um, my uh, my goals, my objectives, uh, my agenda 
was was uh, was selfish. You know, I wanted to be the first guy to get in this gang. I wanted to be the best undercover operative ever. And those were selfish uh, goals, and I knew better than that from my days in football because I wasn't a selfish football player. I was very happy to be the guy that caught the eight-yard pass over the middle and got ear hold so that we could get a first down and that so someone else could run down the sidelines and catch the ball over his shoulder and score a touchdown. I was very happy to play my role for the big picture. And, and uh, in my undercover role, I, I, over time, my goals became selfish. And um, I should have reverted back to the mentality I had as a football player, which is, you know, the whole Bill Belichick thing. Do your job. What do I ask you to do? Um, I knew my role on the football team. I, I knew what my role was, and I was very happy with it. I accepted it. I embraced it. I loved being the guy that got the dog snot knocked out of him to get a first down. I was very happy to do that. But the center of attention and the focus on me in an, as an undercover operative, um, I got away from that. I got like very much like, like I got very self-important. You know, all of a sudden, instead of being, you know, the third choice wide receiver, I was the starting quarterback and all the eyes were on me. And I got, man, I got intoxicated by it. It became my drug, you know, like being the center of the, the, uh, the tension, the center stage, the focus. Man, it was like my heroin. I needed it. I, I had to have it. I had to have my fix of that. And, um, you know, so, so to give a long answer to your short question, the best thing that happened is that I was ultimately able to reground and, and kind of revert back to the person that I think I always was or internally was, not the person that, you know, the, uh, over the course of a, a career spent on the streets where my DNA had been altered by violence and crime. What about from the professional level on that front? Um, investigatively, we. Um, we investigated and we locked up um, some serious criminals. You know, we, we, we locked up people that, you know, had committed murders. We locked up people that had committed rapes um, that were profiting from crime. Uh, like, what, what always infuriated me, you know, I, when I talked about standing up to the bully earlier, is that there's an element of society that wants to go take what you have earned. They don't want to go earn it themselves. They want to steal what you have earned. They don't want to make the sacrifice to go get something. They just want to come and rob you of it. And that was always, oh, that angered me, that people would prey on weak and innocent for their own selfish reasons. And so those are the people we went after, and those are the people that at least for a period of time we took off the street. Jay, was that your last case, Hells Angels? No. Um, when that case ended, I had a few more operations that I was involved in. Um, uh, you know, probably nothing as, as glamorous as that, or at least as high profile as that. But yeah, I continued to work um, after that case. I, I had to be a little more selective because of my exposure from that case, but I worked a couple murder-for-hire cases. I worked some home invasion cases. Uh, where, you know, like a very common crime in, in America today is the home invasion crime, where, um, you know, a, a, a gang will 
um, attack a drug dealer um, for their money or for their drugs. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like violence on violence crime. Um, I infiltrated those organizations over and over. And I did that after the Hells Angels case. Um, you know, the kid, uh, the kid, that, the, the, the safety for the Redskins that was murdered um, was murdered in a, in a, during a home invasion of his house. Um, I, I, I'm, um, I, w- I wish I could recall his name. Is That's it Taylor? Sean? What's his name? Sean Taylor, Sean right? Taylor? Yeah, Sean yeah. Taylor. He was murdered during a home invasion because, like I talked about earlier, thugs who wanted to kick in his door and go steal what he had earned, his jewelry, his money, his, his, his valuables, his assets, his wealth. They didn't want to go earn it themselves. This kid had, had uh, sacrificed and worked to achieve you know, greatness on the football field, and he was being rewarded for it financially. And, that, and then someone wanted to come in and take it from him, and then he confronts him and is shot and killed. Like, those are the people that I wanted to try to do something about. I wanted to get to them before they got to Sean Taylor. How much time, Jay, in between the Hells Angels, like when you finish, I mean, that's probably not even not even to get specific on that case. But when you finish uh, a case, how much time before you get assigned to your next one? Because I'm, I'm wondering, is there a part of you that wants to get back in or a part of you that says, you know what, I'm actually okay kind of hanging out with the kids and the family and mowing the lawn and paying the bills and doing that because it's been a while since I've done that? You know, uh, pr- probably another one of my, uh, my character flaws is I couldn't wait to get into the next one. Um, I, I, I didn't give myself much chance to decompress. When I finished one, I wanted to start the other one. And when I finished that one, I was ready for the next one. Um, I, I didn't want that cool out, mellow out time. I wanted to... I didn't. I wanted to play a game every day because I was so addicted to the rush of that competition, and and that, that's where it is. I think ultimately, as an athlete, I think I was just a good competitor. Um, I don't know how good of a, a talent or performer I was, but I was competitive, and that was professionally. That is where my competition release came from. Can I get over on you? Can I make you believe that I'm someone I'm not? Can I gain your trust? Can I gain your loyalty to the point where you're going to let me in and expose me to what you're doing criminally? That was uh, huge for me internally, that, that mental, emotional competition. Jay, when, when you are nearing, I mean, there's objectives, right? Like Hell's Angels, I'm sure there was every case that you do, there's an objective. But how do you decide when you get out is that you is it complete the mission like i'm sure there's a ton of factors but how do you decide when enough is enough you know historically for me and and i don't think this is uh necessarily good historically for me it was always someone else telling me it's time to end this it was always a case supervisor or a manager saying it's time for you to come out because i never felt like i was done i never we may set uh, goals at the beginning of an investigation. This is what we want to accomplish. But even after we accomplish those, you're meeting people and it's always continuing and it's, there's always something else to do. And so in my mind, it was never over. And I would like, they'd be saying, Hey, it's time to come out. And I'd be begging, no, let me stay in. I can do this guy. I can do more. Um, like, let me chase this lead. Um, and so I was usually uh, drug away 
from those cases versus saying, okay, well, we accomplished the mission here. We met our goals. Time for something else. I, I was like, like yanked out of cases, drug away from cases, kicking and screaming because I wanted to stay enrolled and I wanted to keep working and try to do more. Wow, that's wild. I, I would think, I mean, but you, the mentality that you have heading into these cases, I mean, you're so driven to try to get the most out of it. I, I'm curious because while I was researching, doing a lot for, for the show, I, I know there was a fallout, though, from the Hells Angels case. So you worked a couple of cases. I actually thought the Hells Angels one was your last one. I was surprised to hear that you did a couple more. So explain how things went south from the Hells Angels case um, to the point sure. where, you know, your house gets burned down. There's a, a hit contract on. I mean, that's wild to me. Well, sure. that's your world, right? I mean, you, you, you saw that firsthand. But how, like what happened there? You know, th there's nothing that's shocking about that to me, because if you're going to befriend violent people who have a violent nature, and then you're going to betray that friendship, and ultimately you've tricked them, and you've pretended to be someone you're not, then they, they get angry. Anybody that's ever been betrayed knows that, that anger slash heartbreak of being deceived. Um, when, when someone that has a violent tendency has that, they act on it different than, than most people do. So when my true identity came out, oh my goodness, the, the death threats and the violence threats started coming and they started coming on my family and they were like threatening my kids. Now we know where your kids go to school. You're going to be waiting for your kid to get off a school bus one day and he's not getting off and you're never going to see him again. Threats to videotape the gang rape of my wife and make me watch it. Um, they'd issued uh uh, murder contracts against me to the Aryan Brotherhood, to the MS-13, to some Los Angeles street gangs, all trying to come and get me. Um, in August of 2008, my house was burned to the ground. I lost everything I owned, my house and every possession, to the point where my wife and my kids were literally the next day at Walmart buying underwear because they didn't have a pair of underwear to put on. Um, all those, you know, those, yeah, that's, you know. Hey, how do they it, find it, out it where sounds, what, what, how, do, how is sorry, that possible? It sounds cavalier. Yeah. It sounds cavalier. It's just, it's the, it's the cost of doing business. If you're like, no one held a gun to my head and said, hey, you have to work undercover. No one twisted my arm and said, you have to go work on the Hells Angels. You have to be a hitman. I did it because I wanted to. And I knew that there were side effects. And so, um, they, I think to answer your question, they found out just through the legal process um, in America, uh, which makes our system, our legal system, our justice system great, is that as, a, as someone uh, who's on trial, you have the right to confront your accusers. Well, I was the accuser. I was the guy that had gathered the information and gathered the evidence and was taking the stand. So all of a sudden, Jay Bird Davis uh, the biker, the criminal, is really Jay Dobbins, the undercover agent. Um, and these guys are smart. Gangs across, I don't care what gang we're talking about, they may not be book smart. They may not be college educated, but I'll tell you what, they have their PhDs in the street in violence and intimidation, and they're really good at it. When your house gets 
I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe this, and this might sound, you use the term cavalier, I almost feel like a kind of a jerk saying this, but they burn your house down, they know where you live. Um, like, what sort of stops them from, I'd say, it, I mean, kind of finishing the job, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, they know where you live, they burn down your house, so they can find you. Well, you know, like, people roll their eyes at me for this, and I and I get it, I get it, but... What I wasn't going to do is I wasn't going to be a coward. I, was, I, I, I wasn't going to live in fear. I was going to live with concern. I've seen firsthand how violent they can be. I'd experienced it in my personal life, how violent they could be. But I wasn't going to live in fear. Um, I was going to live with concern. And after my house got burned down, I felt, and I, man, I know people are just going to be like, man, what, what's wrong with this guy? I felt like I had to make a stand. And um, I rebuilt that house and I moved back in it. And there was, I had a continuing dialogue with some suspects who I met with face to face. Um, and I told them, hey, look, here I am. Whatever your problem is, let's figure it out. We'll figure it out right now. And we'll either all go to the hospital or we'll all go to the morgue, but let's figure it out. But you stay off my property and you leave my family out of this. They had nothing to do with it. Um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure how else you handle it. To be quite honest with you, how, like, what else are you supposed hide. to do? Run, hide. Um, man. In today's world, you know, in today's world, um, with the internet, with everything else, I mean, you can only hide. I mean, maybe if you're a CIA officer and you've got, you know, the whole infrastructure of uh, the intelligence community behind you, you know, if, if if you're Jason Bourne, you might be able to do it. But me and you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, but aren't there proto? Is there protocol? Aren't there things that are set up for? agents that do undercover work like how are you not protected in these environments and in these situations you know no offense jay you shouldn't be the guy that's confronting suspects saying leave my family out of this rebuilding your home and going back in like that shouldn't be happening right i'll tell you what you know what and this this actually makes me grin the you know we have a witness protection program the marshals run a witness protection program that witness protection program is for informants and sometimes for victims. Um, it doesn't apply, it, like law enforcement officers aren't eligible for that. So for example, if you're Sammy the Bull Gravano and you have 17 murders on your belt and whatever else, and you decide to inform and to testify against John Gotti, you can go in the witness protection program. And then they move him to Scottsdale and then he sets up an ecstasy ring and gets busted again for being a drug dealer in the witness protection program. But if you're a federal agent or a state or a local officer, there is no such thing. You're on your own. Does it make sense? No. no. Is it reality? Yes. You know what? Um, theory and reality are two very different things in that world. There's, there's also Theoretically, what... we would take care of those people. In theory, we would protect them. In theory, we would value them. The reality of it is, is you are on your own. How is that possible? That it, my mind is blown right now hearing that. That is, you're, you're saying, hey, the reality. There's also common sense. I, that's well, just look I at mean, the I, political I'm, arena, Mike. You're talking about common sense. Yeah. Where is it? Look yeah, at look at yeah. look at our look at our government today. Look at politics today. Look at the people that are leading our country and making laws and making decisions. Logic and reason and common sense, like, do not apply. 
that's abundantly clear. And I thought it was bad enough watching you know, the politics. Hearing your story, I'm like, this is next level chaos uh, that you've had to deal with. I, I, you, you mentioned something, Jay, with regard to the, um, the trial process. You go to trial. You go from, you know, biker guy, tattoos. I'm assuming you walk into the courtroom suited up, you know, shirt and tie oh, yeah. maybe, and you take the stand. What's the the connection, like the eye contact, the emotions, the feelings that are involved when you're on the stand and you're seeing the dude that you're about to put away sitting right across from you? Man, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty trippy because um, prior to trial, what suspects knew me was as, as this criminal, as this hitman, you know, um, cut off camos, shorts and flip-flops and a white beater t-shirt and a skull cap and wraparound sunglasses and tattoos. And then they see you in a suit and a tie with your hand raised, swearing to tell the truth and, and, and taking the witness stand as a federal agent. Um, so there's, I mean, there's, man, it's, it's trippy. Um, I personally always made it my point to look the suspects in the eye because you know what? I'm not the bad guy here. I'm not the one that committed the murder or the rape or sold the drugs or ran the guns. I'm the good guy. I don't have to look away. I don't have to look down. I'm going to look you in the eye. You're going to be held accountable for what you did in my presence. Um, and so that was the way I conducted myself. I never mocked anybody that I was arrested. I never celebrated uh, the end of the case. Um, I never looked to crash anybody's life um, that I was investigating. Sometimes those things happened. Um, I, that was never my objective. My objective was to represent the good and innocent people in our country and conduct investigations using overt techniques. Um, and, and what I did and what I found out and what I was present for or heard or saw or participated in, I was going to testify about that honestly. And I didn't have to be shy about that. You you talked before about when you were in these on these cases, the relationships that you develop with, you know, essentially the suspects that are out there. I'm assuming those connections were not just with them, with their family members as well. You mentioned oh, holding yeah. babies. Yeah. You know, you, um, when you're in a long term infiltration, you're dealing with some really rough people. But does that mean everybody in their world is rough? I'll tell you this. Um, Every Hell's Angel, every guy out there wearing a Hell's Angel's patch isn't a murderer or a rapist or a drug dealer or a gun runner. Um, not all of them are. Um, and the ones that are, there's still times in their life where they're normal. Um, so like I talked about earlier, you can never, as a human being, whether you're undercover or not, you can never eliminate the human factor. At least I was never able to do that. I was never able to completely relinquish you know, compassion and sympathy um, for people, for their families, for their kids, for their wives, girlfriends. Um, I, I never got beyond that where I just didn't care. Um, I always cared about them. Um, you know, when I have people that I locked up, I mean, locked up for like a pretty good chunk of time who got out and contacted me and said, thank you. Had you not investigated me, had I not gone to prison and been held accountable for what I did, I would have never seen the light. And there's people out there that did some pretty vile crimes that I convicted them for that are out there making a positive contribution to society. And I'm, and I'm you know, um, I think there's some, probably some cops who'd roll their eyes. Man, I'm happy for them. 
I'm happy to see someone get a second chance and see the errors in their ways and go try to make a difference or at least earn an honest living. I'm not, you know, like I ain't saving anybody. I'm nobody's knight in shining armor. Um, I'm no hero. Um, but when someone figures it out, man, how do you not shake their hand and, and say, well done? When you were on the stand, knowing those relationships that you had, and and I'm assuming, hey, you know, there are people that would contact you because you, you were obviously doing this for a long period of time. You knew the potential for some of these guys and, you know, maybe they would get out and some obviously did as you made reference to. But when you're on the stand, you said, hey, I, you never mocked anyone. You, you you were, you know, holding up the, the hand saying, I, I swear to tell the true, whole truth, the whole deal. Whatever. Do you, do you ever think about when you're on the stand, their family members and what they must be thinking? Maybe some of them were even sure. in the court at the time. Sure. Sure. And, uh, you know, you, you know, you're the enemy. There's, um, you know, domestic violence is, is, is prevalent in our society. And, you know, there's, there's women, you know, that I saw like being abused and mistreated. And then when their abuser is being confronted and held accountable and arrested, they're saying like, don't take him away. I love him. Um, and it, you know, yeah. So yeah. Do you feel for him? Absolutely. You feel for him, you know? Um, life's not easy. It's not easy for any of us. And it's especially hard when you're making questionable decisions for your life. Um, uh, makes it a lot harder. I just realized something in my head and I should have asked you about this earlier. You said you, when your house got burned down, you built another house, same spot, confronted people and said, Hey, you know, we're going to have it out. I mean, how does that happen? How, how do you, like, do you find them? Do they, you know, is it a, I, I, just, I was about to make a bad joke about a ring and run with what teenagers do or kids do back in the day. And I used to do it when I was a yeah, kid too, but, right? but sure. I mean, is it, it's not a ring and run. I'm sure it's not that they don't mind hanging out. They want to scare you. They want to spook you. What, what's that? What are those interactions like? Are they showing up at the house? Do you go and find them? You know where they hang out? How does that work? Yeah. You know, I, I had contact with some people and said, you know, we got to talk. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, like at that point, I, I really, to be honest with you, I had nothing to lose. Um, I was on my own and I was losing. I was, oh man, I was getting my ass kicked, you know, threats, violence, threats, murder contracts. My house is burned down. They're after my kids. You know, they're threatening to, you know, attack my wife. One of the murder contracts said, Hey, we're not going to shoot the guy. We're going to stick him with a, a, a needle contaminated with the AIDS virus. We don't have to put a bullet in him. Just give him AIDS. Oh He's going to die anyways. Um, you know, uh, we had guys saying, Hey, you want to hurt him? You can't hurt him with a baseball bat on the back of his head, hurt his kids. That's what will hurt him. So when you have nothing to lose, you know, uh, man, desperate men take desperate measures. And so was that the right thing to do? I don't know. I just felt like it was the only thing to do. I had to do something. Um, and so, you know, some of the, some of the people that I still had contact with and dialogue with, you know, we, we figured it out. Um, you know, you figure it out. Um, hey, what does that know, mean? It wasn't like I was going to run to the government and say like, Hey, help me. No one was helping me. I had to figure it out myself and I didn't know what to do. I was like one guy on his loan, uh, on his own, somewhat abandoned, trying to figure out how to protect myself and my family from an international crime syndicate. I didn't have a lot of answers. I still can't believe that that you don't have some sort of protection from 
the government in a situation like that. That is still shocking to me. But you said, hey, we're going to figure this out. What What is like what what do you say to those guys? I mean, how do you figure um, you know, out? Hey, I just busted you and your boys. They're in jail. I I lied to you. I'm a, I was an undercover agent. I infiltrated your group. What are you going to do about? It? Oh, you're going to burn my house down. You're going to threaten my family, or my kids, my wife. You're going to do these bad things to me. How do what? How do you figure that out? What's there to figure out? You know, I almost feel like if you're if you're solo, Jay, hell, like don't you go on the offensive at that point? And and I I mean I don't want to say anything out of out of turn here, but don't you uh, sort yeah, of see, you're it. desperate? Like go after them. Like really go after them. Well, I, I think, um, did that cross my mind? Of course it did. But, um, you know, I, I, I mean, we still live in somewhat of a civilized society. It wasn't like, like I'm either capable or, or probably even willing to go seek street justice. Um, if, if, if I was going to go seek street justice on the people that committed crimes against me, then I'm no better than they are. I'm, I'm, I'm the same person that they are. I deserve to be um, prosecuted. That's not how it works. Um, I think when I had that meeting, I think um, there was some, maybe some reluctant or some unspoken respect gained that I was standing there vulnerable. Um, I, th- I, I think, you know, to not be too cliche, there is some honor amongst thieves. And um, I, I think that, you know, and I told them, I said, look, I said, if you got a problem with me, I understand it. If you got a problem with the betrayal, I understand that. Um, but what did I do wrong? Like, I was a witness to your crimes, and I testified about them. And, and so, like, I have to be punished for that? Like, I'm not the one out committing the crimes. I know you don't like people to uh, take the stand against you. I don't have a choice. I'm not an informant. I'm not a rat. I'm not snitching on you guys. I'm a federal agent. I, I, this is my job to report out to the judge and jury what you did. Not what I did, what you did. Are you scared when you show up to that? Are you armed? Because what would stop them? They um, just burned your house down, right? What would stop them yeah, from just scared? putting you there? Yeah, I think, I think most cops, um, um, a lot of cops I know will say, oh, I'm not scared. I'm not afraid. You know, man, I was scared all the time. I think I was good at hiding it. I think I was good at concealing that emotion and not letting it be seen by the adversary. Um, you know, as a football player and you're a wide receiver and you're lined up and you, uh, you know, like in, in my situation, like I'm going to run a slant route and, uh, and Don Rogers is the, is the safety. And I weigh 170 pounds and he weighs two and a quarter. He's, you know, he's got this reputation of being the biggest hitter in the country. Are you scared? Yeah, you you know, you, you don't want to have your head caved in, but you go do it, you know, you you grit your teeth and you're like, man, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to try. I'm willing. Um, it's not all that different. It's not all that different. Like 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 physical fear is man, you know, physical fear makes some people bow. Um makes other people like roll their shoulders up and say, let's go. I think it's just, you know, depends on who you are and maybe what the situation is. Jay, I'm sure some people are, are listening to this podcast right now and they're yelling at me because they're probably like, yeah, how come you haven't asked about where 
Jay's family was when the house is burned down and those threats are coming and they're I, I, I feel even awkward repeating what you had said that they were going to do. I, where, where are they? I mean, at that moment. My family, which is, oh my goodness, my family was inside the house when the arsonist hit. The arsonist oh, hit Jesus. at three o'clock in the morning. Um, they lit the fire right outside my daughter's bedroom. Um, the house was on fire and my son, you know, the son I told the story about giving me the rock saying there, I'm, here, I'm there to help you. Um, didn't realize the house was on fire until the, uh, the heat exploded the windows in his bedroom. Um, and then he ran and, and woke up his, his sister, my daughter, and woke up my, my wife, his mother, and got him out of the house. Um, and, you know, I, I was out of town. I, was, I, I wasn't even there, um, which, uh, oh, my goodness. It's like the, uh, the trauma for them, having experienced that attack, is something very unfair. No family, especially no children, should have to go through that. You know, I had my own trauma about it, like not being there. You know, a couple of days after, um, I'm in the yard and I'm like literally walking around this crime scene that's still smoldering. And my son, who was now about, I don't know, maybe 12 at the time, is holding a claw hammer, like a framer's hammer in his hand. And I said, I said, Jackie, I said, what are you doing with that hammer? And he's like, Dad, he goes, you weren't here. What if they come back? And I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done to my family? What have I done? I got my 12-year-old walking around the ashes of his house with a hammer, thinking that bad people are going to come back to hurt him and I might not be there. Jay, how do, how do things... People say, oh, Jay, you're a hero. You're whatever. I'm not a hero. There's nothing heroic about that. There's nothing gallant about that. Well, the sacrifice is huge. Sacrifice, sacrifice to... Sure. Sure. I mean, to make sure that everyone else is pretty safe. I mean, yeah. you took, like oh, okay. you told me, you said okay. the investigation was, you took murderers, rapists, drug dealers, gang members, dangerous people sitting in jail. So there's a sacrifice. And, and I think maybe that's where the, the hero aspect comes from. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it from that aspect. I don't, I don't look at that myself that way. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not all that flattered by myself. I don't take myself all that serious. Um, I had a job to do. I did the best I could. Um, I had good days. I had bad days. There was days when I succeeded. There was days when I failed. There was days when I made good decisions. There was days when I made mistakes. Um, it's no difference than, than you know, I, I, in the theme of our sports conversation, it's no difference than, than looking back and, and evaluating your performance the day after a game. Um, did some things good. Could have done some things better. Made some mistakes. Did some things good. You know, scored a touchdown, missed a block. Life. Jay, where, where do things stand for you personally? I mean, you're, you're no longer an agent, uh, you know, with your family, what you're doing, like where, where are things now? Um, I do some writing. Um, I found some very successful, by the way, the, the New York yeah, times bestseller. That's not easy to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, um, I enjoy that. I enjoy the storytelling process. Um, I coach high school football, which I, oh my goodness, I absolutely adore my kids. Um, I, like I get more out of coaching high school football than they do. Um, they, those kids give me more than I can give them really, uh, man, just brings a lot of joy to me. Um, I do some public speaking. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've done what I can to rehabilitate some of the battle damage I put on my family. Um, my family's good. My son plays division two football in Nebraska, Shadron state. He's having a, he's having nice. a very nice year. 
Um, and so I'm enjoying his athletic success, watching him and, and, and seeing him go through what I went through, which is what every athlete goes through. Unless you're a phenom, unless you're one of these kids who comes out of high school and is a freak, man, we all sacrifice and we all have to wait our turn and we all compete and we all feel like we're not being given a fair chance and then the opportunity comes and what do we do with it? I mean, he's going through all that stuff, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to watch him. It's fun to watch him, um, you know, fight through the, the heartache and then stay resilient, keep working, um, overcome discouragement, and put yourself in a position to play and contribute and to realize your dreams. Jay, do you still at all have moments of fear where you still are worried? Yeah, sure. Um, not as much for myself as my family. Um, I, I'm, I'm trained and prepared and geared uh, for confrontation. Uh, my family's not. It's, that, that, that's not the business they were in. Um, so for myself, um, I'm concerned. You know, I, I have concerns, but like, I mean, I live my life. It's like I'm not sitting in a cave like Osama bin Laden waiting for someone to shoot a rocket at me. Um, I don't go to places that I shouldn't be. I don't hang out in environments that I shouldn't be at. Um, I'll, I'll walk away from a problem. I'll run away from a problem if you give me, give me the opportunity to. If you corner me um, and, and force me to do what I have to do, then it's going to be a bad day for all of us. But I'm not looking for trouble. I don't, I don't want trouble. Jay, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, doing some things as a writer, a speaker. I made reference to the, the book that you did write that was a New York Times bestseller. It's called No Angel, My Harrowing Undercover Journey to the Inner Circle of Hell's Angels. Uh, I know there's more information you do, speaking engagements as well uh, at jdobbins.com. That's J-A-Y-D-O-B-Y-N-S. It'll be in the show notes for, uh, for this podcast. What's the, what's the next thing that you're writing, the next book? I have another book that's uh, the manuscript's written. It's at the uh, editor. It's, you know, going through some revisions. And it's, you know, the, the No Angel book was part case study, part memoir, part, of, part an examination of that investigation and part of what I went through personally through it, maybe a 50-50 split. Uh, this next book is similar in theme. It's uh, a series of events and situations from my life and then how they affected me and, you know, what I did good or did bad. I think people that have read No Angel, what, what I has, have historically gotten back from that in review is that it's, it's not your normal cop book because normal cop books are I love me stories. And, and the protagonist comes in as a hero and leaves as a bigger hero. Um, that's not No Angel. No angel, the, the protagonist, myself, comes in as a, you know, as a grinder, and it's that person's de-evolution, that person's sinking. Um, and so this next book is, a, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wider net. I'm, I, I'm not just talking about the Hells Angels investigation. I'm talking about other investigations and other events in my life and how they shaped me and, and what I did right, what I did wrong, my family. It's a, it's a much broader story. Jay, I cannot 
thank you enough. Uh, there's a lot of thank yous. Number one, for I, I didn't think we were going to go this long, so I apologize. Uh, you know, for going for as long as we did. Your story is absolutely incredible. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing it. I know, um, you know brutally honest with me, so I, I, I can't thank you enough for that. And then I know you don't think of yourself as a hero, but the sacrifice that is abundantly clear as you're telling me some of the things that you went through, and I know the details of some of those experiences in your book are way more descriptive than, than what you shared here on this podcast. So I do encourage people to take a closer look, but just knowing some of the things that you had to endure and the sacrifice with your family and what they've had to uh, to deal with as well. I, I and look, you put bad dudes away, man. That's that's what the the reality is. So there's a big thank you, I think, for everyone who's listening from this to this podcast um, that can appreciate uh, the job that you did, obviously professionally. So w- once again, Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely, thank you. Very kind words, and um, thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm sorry, like I watch you on uh, Pac-12 Network, and um, I love our league. And when I say our league, I, it's my league, it's your league, yep. it's, uh, you know, it's John McKay's league, it's Marcus Allen's league, it's, you know, it, like, like all these people that played in this league, I, I didn't play to the level of, obviously, of John Elway and, uh, you know, some of these incredible, incredible people that have come out of the uh, Pacific Conference, but it's our league. You know, it's Lynn Swan's league. It's, you know, it's it, it's Frank Cush's league. Oh my goodness, yeah. I mentioned Arizona State. You know, it's <laughs> it's you know, it's Rich Rod's league. It's you know, it's it's uh, Chip Kelly's league. It's it's Marcus Mariota's league. It's ours. You know, like like I'm so flattered to be part of that Pac eight, Pac ten, Pac twelve fraternity. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's one. One of the cool things I grew up on the East Coast, Jay. Uh, you know, it was mostly professional sports that I had covered significantly before I came out. And I did a little bit of college uh, when I was at ESPN, and now obviously it's all college sports for me now at Pac-12 Network. It's one of the coolest things about being here on the West Coast, and I don't know if it's like this necessarily in the other conferences, but there's that hashtag back the pack that uh, we use on Twitter a lot, and you can sort of see that connection. I think maybe it's a little bit of a chip on the shoulder of all the West Coast teams that don't get the attention and the love from the uh, the biased East Coast. And yeah, I said it, and I can say it because I'm from the East Coast, but uh, there is something really cool about that and the, the stories and the experiences that everyone have uh, have in this conference. So uh, so it is Absolutely. pretty cool for you to say that. That is cool. You know, my Wildcats cool. are struggling a little bit. You know, my Wildcats <laughs> are having a little bit of a rough year, but they're going to get back on track. And, you know, I love Rich Rod. And then I'm also, like, I'm proud of what Washington's doing. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, yeah. I, it's great. Like, you know, I want them to stay undefeated. I want them to, I want them to get into the playoff yeah. championship. Yep. I want them to, you know, I want them to get there. I want them to represent for us, you know, and they're our best chance and I'm, I'm pulling for them and yeah. you know, gosh, darn it. We took them to overtime. So uh, there's <laughs> exactly. No, there's no moral victories in football, but we took them to overtime. You know, the cool thing, Rich Rodriguez is a good friend of the show. He's been on the uh, on the podcast as well. And I know you're still close with the uh, the program. And I'm sure the guys up there obviously love your story as well. Uh, Jay, oh, thank you again, man. For, yes. He is. He's the be- I think he's the best storyteller of all the coaches in the league. He's he's uh, awesome. He's yeah. He and, and he uh, em- embraces uh, the alumni. He embraces us old guys and makes us feel like we're part of his program. And um, that's really cool. Really it's cool. Im- he makes us important. he makes us feel important, even though we're not very important anymore. He makes us feel important. 
Well, you guys were the, the guys before those guys that are out there now, so definitely still important. Uh, Jay, thank you again, man. Mike, thanks for having me. Very flattered, and I enjoyed our conversation. Well, I think it's official. This will go down as the most wild story that you're going to hear on the Give Me a Sense podcast. Just eye-opening on so many different levels to hear Jay's story. Really hope you enjoyed it. And I know typically I try to keep the episodes under an hour or so. And uh, obviously there was just so much stuff there to to talk to Jay about with, with regard to infiltrating Hell's Angels and and the undercover work that he was doing. So um, hopefully that you guys enjoy this, like I said, a little bit longer than normal. And I can't thank everyone enough for the feedback. I know I started off the show talking about people sharing the podcast and, and sort of talking about how important that was. Um, you know, the feedback is is really crucial because I love hearing from you guys. And, and obviously I'm kind of promoting this thing by myself. But today's guest actually is because of someone reaching out and telling me about Jay's story. So Leighton, uh, I can't thank you enough also for that connection. If you're enjoying the show, once again, share it. Uh, that would be fantastic. And continue to rate, subscribe, and review. I know people listen to it on Stitcher and tune in, not to mention iTunes. Uh, but do what you can to let people know about the Give Me a Sense podcast. Once again, thanks so much for listening.